Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Woo! This is the bag, and I don't think anyone's ever wooed a harp before. That's cool. <laughs> Woo! Yeah! Play some nocturnes! Pluck it! <laughs> Pluck it! <laughs> uh, anyway, that, this... that, that is the name of the John M. Chu directed Harpist versus Harpist movie that's coming very soon. Okay, that no, that that sounds well, John, like John um... M. Chu's like thanks to Crazy Rich Asians, like his profile has risen considerably. No, 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 and, and with but, good uh, cause, he's very talented. Yeah. This sounds this sounds like the next high strung movie. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be harps and new wave dancing. But it'll be called Pluck It with an exclamation point. I love it. Someone please do that and give us money. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is the podcast where you control the conversation here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. And everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Yes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> and you. And that is that. Uh, and yeah, here we read your letters. People write in to us. They ask us questions. They uh, criticize our critiques. They uh, look for recommendations. They want to talk about uh, issues involving the film industry or film history or television or anything else, really. I mean, we have our expertise, but you're welcome to ask us about other stuff. Uh, and you can write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We have a lot of letters. We try to uh, bounce around, get to as many as we possibly can. And we like to just get started on this podcast because the time is yours. Whitney, what do we got first? First, we got Bill. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Uh, Bill says, hi, Rockmeister McCool. That's me. Mm -hmm. And Jazzmeister McSmooth. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Thank you. Can that be a thing? Please. I'm I'm Rockmeister McCool. I guess you are now Jazzmeister McSmooth. Just what I needed. More nicknames. Uh, I came to your podcast, Empire, through Cancel Too Soon, as I am more of a TV guy and have only recently begun listening to your more film-focused offerings. I'm curious why you introduce yourselves uh, in We've Got Mail as film critics when discussing discussing television is a substantial part of your work and the podcast is open to questions about both media. Uh, hmm. Is this a matter of how you perceive yourselves or maybe how you want to present yourselves to the audience? More broadly, what do you see as a difference between film and television criticism? Uh, are there different approaches, different skills you apply? Hmm. When you meet other critics, do you find uh, that the two are different sorts? Hmm. Thanks, I'll write back with a television question later as I would like to hear more of them here, but that should give you plenty to chew on for now. Best Bill. Uh, uh, that's a good question. I don't think it's something we've really analyzed in depth before. Well, uh, this has been brought up occasionally in media studies, you know, by blowhard critics like us who occasionally want to pontificate. Uh, but yeah. uh, because film and television are consumed in pretty much the exact same way these days. Right. Uh, the distinction between them, at least in the eyes of a mass audience, is very, very blurred at this point. Well, I want to clarify before uh, we move on that the part I thought we hadn't really analyzed was why we call ourselves film critics when we do so much other stuff. Right. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Mm. You brought up the, the bigger can of worms. Mm. Uh, let's just pop that sucker open and eat some worms. Um, what is the difference between film critics and television critics? Uh, film critics focus on films. Mm. Television critics tend to focus on serialized uh, media, but as Whitney just pointed out, Uh, The way that we consume films, and indeed the language that is used uh, to produce uh, films and television and tell cinematic and uh, televisual stories, is essentially the same. Like, it's using the same similar editing techniques, the same acting styles, uh, the same visual effects, many of the same screenplay techniques. There are distinctions, in particularly, I find, in how these stories are written, uh, especially now that we live in an era where television is heavily serialized as often as not 
and we're telling long form stories over the course of sometimes hundreds of hours. There are different rules that go into place. There are different guidelines. There are different expectations that come from telling a 200-hour television series and telling a two-hour movie. However, that's just a matter of length. Fundamentally, they are very similar. Yeah. And uh, for a long time, the distinction was uh, far more clear-cut. First of all, there wasn't television. Uh, Uh, Yeah, initially uh, we didn't have TV. We had cinema first. uh, But, you know, if you look at some of the early, early... pieces of cinema or in the early silent days when things were still being sort of experimented with you'll notice that uh films were being staged with like prosceniums Mm. they were told from a single perspective they had uh theatrical lighting and because there weren't film actors yet because the technology was so new they hired theatrical actors so a lot of when he's talking about the very 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 i'm talking about like very like like 1900 around there before Uh, 1910 but even then we started experimenting pretty quick but anyway but uh as such you could say that those early days of cinema were actually very similar to live theater. Yes. Because they were being staged in a very similar way. And in fact, we actually came back around to that mm. when uh, sound became a, a factor mm. in filmmaking and movies started to en masse and indeed soon almost exclusively be made uh, with audio. Uh, the difficulties of producing films with audio in the earliest era of cinematic sound uh, were multitudinous. Uh, cameras were big, loud, and noisy. It was hard to hide a microphone. The technology wasn't very, very small. There were a lot of limitations, and indeed a lot of filmmaking got less, as you might say, cinematic and retreated more into into live theater because it was easier to record sound that way. Mm -hmm. We've heard stories about how uh, the Marx Brothers, The Night at the Opera, just the, the studio where they would record all their movies, they could only record like in the wee hours of the morning because it was too loud outside. Nah, it would just ruin all their sound. More, um, pick up other sounds. So yeah, TV came along uh, in the, I think, late well, 30s, 40s, 50s. And, well, the, the, it you really know. became popular like after World War II. Like yeah. the 1950s was when TV really took off in earnest. People could start and, uh, affording TVs yeah, and, and like having, more content was made for it. Having them in their home. There's a really wonderful... Uh, series of scenes in the movie all that heaven allows hmm. where uh the, this woman who's like in her late 40s she has uh grown children she's a widow and uh where she's wondering like what if her life is going to go anywhere if she's just going to live in the gray the rest of her life right. and uh there's some dialogue to the effect of oh she'll be okay we'll just get her a tv and there's this really tragic scene where she, you know, she has this affair with Rock Hudson, and uh, can't, and he's younger and adventurous and outdoors anywhere. Flannel, how scandalous! <laughs> and, uh, All that Heaven allows is an awesome film, by the way. Um, I've actually never seen it. Uh, you've seen Written on the Wind? No, uh, are, are actually, you a Cirque guy? I have uh, seen Douglas Cirque movies, okay. but I've mostly seen the stuff other people don't talk about. Like okay. he did a great serial killer thriller starring uh, Lucille Ball, Boris Karloff, and George Sanders called Lured. L U R E D. I haven't seen Lured. It's really cool and actually kind of ahead of its time in the way that it okay. uses like uh, CSI criminal investigation elements and right. um, the way Lucio Ball's character is. It's it's really good actually. I hope more people see that movie. But anyway, I've seen some Douglas Sirk stuff, but for whatever reason, I've missed most of the big ones. Yeah, all that heaven allows and written on the wind are like the the two sort of defining films of his career. Yeah. But uh, as far as I've experienced. Um, but yeah, there's a scene in that movie where it's like she she breaks up with Rock Hudson and they finally put a television in her house. And there's this scene where she kind of sees her reflection in the television that's off and you kind of see her crying like she's in that box now. Yeah. Um, 
And it was referred to as the idiot box because uh, television, if you want to get into like the McLuhan-esque garbage, um, is is like much more immediate. It's a, a hotter mm. medium. It's much more easy for mm. c- quick and casual consumption. As, uh, and as such, a lot of early television and television for decades, in fact, was meant for uh, quick, easy home consumption. Whereas yeah. cinema was at least academically, supposed to be larger and more challenging. Now, that is, of course, nonsense, but the way that the show that uh, shows were consumed on TV, uh, the types of televisions people had, you know, very, very small screens, the types of shows that would be made in order to maximize the use of that very, very small screen, you weren't didn't have quite so many options cinematically. Uh, there were limitations to television in the early days that had to do with technology, that had to do with the way and the amount of time people had to consume. Um, a lot of early uh, serialized television shows, in particular soap operas, mm. they had the dialogue had to be like extra, like on the nose because the expectation was that the people who were home during the day to watch these uh, uh, homemakers mm. wouldn't necessarily be sitting down and watching the TV. Surely they would be doing laundry and mm. listening in and only looking when they could. Uh, sexist notion to begin with but uh in any case tv and film were treated differently were produced differently and now we're at a point where that line you're right has completely uh, blurred there are things that tv can do that films can't there are very few things that films can do that tv can't usually it's a matter of budget i find um perhaps and also well the idea with film is that they were um I don't want to say tidier, but because they concluded, yeah. you were able to sort of uh, cover, I think, a little bit more of an intense gamut of emotions. You couldn't have something like Ohazard Balthazar on TV. Well, um, you, even if you could, my point is this. Um, TV critics, if you refer to yourself as a TV critic, in my experience, a television critic still reviews TV movies. Mm-hmm. You know, HBO or basically any station that wants to can just make a movie Mm. and just debut it on television. It would be eligible for the Emmys instead of the Oscars, but otherwise, same exact thing as a movie. A TV critic would review that, too. TV can do all that. Movies, yeah, okay, there are some serialized films. There used to be more serials in the cinemas. Short films that were like 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes long that would screen week to week and you'd come back to the theater to see the next chunk of it. That fell out of favor in around the late 40s, early 50s. Mm -hmm. But we did a very long podcast uh, discussing uh, the Flash Gordon serials, which were very important in blockbuster serials in the 1930s. In a recent episode of Episode Zero, it was our first episode of Episode Zero. So there, there was another similarity that film had right then. But nowadays, like the closest we get is our serialized blockbuster f- mm. franchises well, was, like I, Marvel, Fantastic Beasts, I, I, or I, anything I was, like that. I was going to mention that that yeah. uh, one of the bigger uh, revolutions uh, was in recent cinema has been those Avengers movies. Not just because mm. they've taken the world by storm and everybody yeah. won't shut up about them, and but because they, they are, make billions. But they are a distinct form of storytelling. Well, they're they're distinct in. Uh, they're distinct for cinema, but mm-hmm. they're actually completely commonplace for television and or comics, was, uh, which is l- also serialized format. L- l- less so, I feel like it resembles TV more than it does actual comics. Yeah. But uh, um, if if it were comics, the films would be like eighty minutes a piece, and we'd get like five of. Well, I guess we do get five of them a year. <laughs> but, uh, 
So we'd, we'd, we'd get like one a month, essentially. They'd yeah. be like little, little kind of bite, a little bit more bite size. Um, there wouldn't be these giganto events, uh, except like maybe once every three years. Oh, we do get it once every three years. Yeah, um, I think the, I think okay. you're, you're talking yourself into admitting at a point. Okay, you, you have a point here. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think, and that especially is especially considering that a lot of them have TV shows that tie in now too. Oh, that's right. They're all you getting know? these TV shows, so it's going to so, be more like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think. Um, Several years ago, I was listening to Linoleum Knife with Dave White and Alonzo Duralde. One uh, of the greatest podcasts. One of the greatest podcasts. The, uh, Dave White and Alonzo Duralde are both amazingly brilliant. You want to hear have... smarter people than us talk more entertainingly than us? They, Linoleum Knife. They see more movies than we do. They have yeah. more refined taste than we do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Dave White noticed like early on the televisionization of cinema. Mm. And that's kind of where TV or where movies were headed. They were headed towards television. Mm-hmm. And uh, he even said rather astutely, uh, and this was like back in 2013 or so, if if you don't really, really love Star Wars or Marvel, the next 15 years are going to be a nightmare for you. You're going to be totally miserable. Mm. Uh, and I don't think that's strictly true, but they sure have soaked up most of the attention, haven't they? they? They've soaked up a lot of the attention. Everybody's been trying to chase that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The, this idea that every single blockbuster needs to remain a permanent part of the popular consciousness is something that's really sort of taken hold. You, you get into conversations with people on Twitter and, and they say you, you, these people can tell whatever stories they want when they're making these superhero movies, but the, the usual counter-argument is, but how would they get a sequel out of it? Why, who cares? <laughs> what if, yeah. I want a good story. I don't want a series of one, sequels. One thing at a time. Yeah. Now, granted, but that's when me you're dealing speaking with, as a film critic. On the other so. hand, a lot of those superheroes that we're talking about, they started off in a serialized medium. Mm. They were specifically designed to be characters you could get multiple stories out of, and indeed, many of them have multiple great stories that would be easily adaptable in a serialized film format. So mm. that one kind of makes sense. We're living in a weird world. Um, to move on from that, because again, that's a that's a big conversation. Mm. Uh, a couple other things that were raised uh, in the email: How do industry folks see each other? Uh, typically, everyone does a little bit of, of everything. I find, but there are specific jobs, and when you're working for a publication, they will frequently have a TV editor who has various freelancers working for Mm -hmm. them, who may work for other departments as well, and a film editor. And why? Because there's enough TV and enough film that you can dedicate your entire work day to just Mm -hmm. keeping abreast of it, posting the news, scheduling screenings, doing interviews for just one medium, and never have enough time to tackle the other. Yeah, and... It just happens. There's, just, there's, there's a lot of it. There's also a divided audience still. And now, mm-hmm. um, there are some people who like to watch big, long, serialized entertainments on television, stuff like Game of Thrones, but they're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to watch a 90-minute feature film, mm-hmm. even though a single episode of Game of Thrones can run as long as 90 minutes, from what I understand. There are also people who uh, don't even like serialized entertainments and prefer episodic stories mm-hmm. in your CSI kind of or a Law & Order mm-hmm. vein. Well, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy. I like that stuff. Yeah, um, I, like it. I, like, I like both. I think mm-hmm. there, there's a room for, for both approaches. I, I'm... I'm too exhausted to take on a, like a long form story. It's like I l- just lose it. No matter how interesting it is, I'm going to lose yeah. interest. It happens. Uh, um, so yeah, so, so that's the, that's how that one works. We yeah. all talk to each other. In my experience, there isn't much of a schism. Like, oh, don't talk to Reginald. He's a TV uh, critic. I don't think there's any lack of respect there. And if there is, it's incredibly immature. Um, well, it, but I think that there is. Uh, 
a, a definite divide of expertise. Uh, there are people mm-hmm. who are so into films that they don't necessarily have the same sort of deep cut knowledge of hot new television. Uh, okay, again, if you listen to Dave White and Alonzo Duralde, they know it all. But uh, right. And uh, there are certainly people who there, do, but there, you there always have people... to pick and choose something. And yeah. a lot of the shows that people love mm. have hundreds of episodes, or at least dozens upon dozens, and mm. you might not have time to watch everything concurrently or to catch up with everything or to keep track of, as we do, the shows that mm. are interesting but fail and maybe deserve more attention. No, I, I haven't stayed on top of a show that wasn't called Star Trek for a long, long, long time. Mm. Uh, so the idea of staying abreast of multiple TV shows is kind of unthinkable to me. Yeah. I, I don't know how that works. Uh, when, and when, it's just because I don't have the time for it. Yeah. Uh, that's just my, my job as a film critic takes up all of this stuff. So I'm glad that the expertise is divided. Yeah. And there, there are people who can pay more attention and devote a lot more attention to something like television. Now, well, when we review television... Mm-hmm. We do short-lived television. That's well, mostly. The, that's, I've that's written a little bit about other it. television. You've yeah. written about Star Trek. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think... But the most most of the time, we talk about mm. short-lived, uh, uh, sort of encapsulated television, where yeah. what's available is all that will probably ever be available, unless it's Tuca and Birdie, and we're very excited about mm. that. Duke and Birdie is a show we covered last season on Cancel Too Soon, and then it got picked up by Adult Swim about a week ago. Huzzah for Tuca and Birdie, that's absolutely amazing. That is an exception to our general rule. I think it's the only one of our shows that has ever been completely picked up again. Mm. Um, But yeah, we tend to do stuff that is, may as well be a movie, although a long one. Uh, But even so, we do cover both. Mm. And I think it's a fair question to ask, why do we consider ourselves film critics above? And we just did at the beginning of the episode. Mm. Why do we do that? And I think the reason... I do it is because film is largely my focus. Mm. I don't tend to write about a lot of contemporary television. We don't tend to podcast about contemporary television. I like contemporary television. I can't keep track of most of it, but I watch what I can when I can. Mm. I think I just think of myself as a film critic. I think I have focused on that. I think I've built up an expertise on that. If someone wanted me to like run the television part of a site... I would have so much catching up to do. I've never seen a single episode of Parks and Recreation. I know it's done now, but you know what I mean. It's this big, <laughs> it's this big thing, and everyone's expected to know all about it and, and reference it, and I'm behind mm. on stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas films, yeah, there's a few things I haven't seen, uh, not so much recently, but there's a few. Yeah, yeah. But well, typically speaking, I'm conversant in most of it. If not an expert in a yeah. lot of it. I, I don't remember how old I was, but I, I don't think I like said it out, out loud one day saying, I'm going to do this. But there was some point uh, early in my, you know, when I was had decided to become a film critic and I was going to focus on films exclusively and I was going to theaters all the time and you know, writing about things just on a blog, uh, which is still online somewhere. Mm. But uh, uh, WhitneyMan.wordpress.com. I think all my like oh my back God. reviews are on there. Uh but at some point, I just sort of had this decision in my head that I wasn't going to focus on television because it just wasn't capturing my interest. Yeah, also, I, I didn't have access to a lot of it, for one. A lot, yeah. a, a lot of the hot shows, I think I made this decision around the time like The Sopranos was on the air. Mm. But I didn't have HBO, and I didn't want to pay for HBO, so yeah. I just didn't watch The Sopranos. I yeah, still how, haven't seen The Sopranos. How committed are you to it? Yeah. Because fit, watching television... Just like movies, especially if you're not getting stuff for free, is expensive. So in, in order to, you know, films were all definitely more of my interest. So that's just what I decided to do. I wanted yeah. to become a film critic. And even though I have written extensively about television and I watch a lot of it mm. uh, for Cancel Too Soon, 
film criticism is my bag. Yeah. That's all, that's all I can really say. That's my beat. Uh, I was briefly, at the start of my uh, film criticism career, full-time anyway, mm. uh, I was doing video game reviews as well. And what I discovered is that my approach to reviewing video games was not what people wanted to read. Like, I was... Yeah. I, I took, you know, functionality as read. If it works, I don't need to mention it. If it doesn't work, then it becomes an issue because it's interfering with the process of experiencing the game. But I was more interested in looking at video games as art, as storytelling, or even when they're abstract as to what, what are they getting at? How are we experiencing them as a unique form of art? And apparently that led to some takes on things like Halo and Castlevania that people weren't terribly fond of. So, um, eh, <laughs> whatever, you know, like it wasn't for me. And when I started to get working full time in film, uh, I didn't have time to play video games consistently anymore anyway. So anyway, mm. that's that. Um, all right. Uh, that's a great question, though. Thank you for bringing that up. It's important to every once in a while uh, interrogate Things that we've been taking for granted. Yeah. yeah. And analyze what we do a little bit. Yeah. Uh, this has come from so, comes from somebody who is, signs off as not your type one. Fair enough. Uh, hello, Nerf Herder and Furball. I'm Nerf, a, I, I think I'm furrier. You're, I don't know. Have you seen me with a shirt off? Have um, you seen me with a shirt off? <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, as far as Modest Heroes... Oh, the you, anime yeah, uh, anthology you, reviewed you, you on reviewed Critically Acclaimed. that one. As for Modest Heroes, I must say, the kid with the food allergy led me to tears. This is in reaction to yeah. uh, Modest Heroes. Uh, real, real fast, in case we need a primer, uh, there's a new uh, film slash uh, short film anthology on Netflix as of this last week called Modest Heroes. It's by three different anime filmmakers. Uh, there really isn't much of a connective tissue other than uh, the people in the films have tales of modest heroics. Um mm. It's very, very good, and the last installment completely moved me. And I guess this person liked the middle installment yeah. about a child with a deadly allergy uh, the yeah. best. Let's talk about it. Uh, I am type 1 diabetic. Since I was 3, I'm now 38, and I've had to watch the intake of food since I could literally have memories. I remember going bo uh, to bowling birthday parties and my mom bringing a special thing so I could be part of the celebration. Those special things generally were not as cool as the chocolate cake that every other kid had. Uh, I can relate. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to take Bibbs up on one thing uh, hmm. that that he said. That is, the kid grabbed a cookie. Uh, of course, the kid would take a cookie without thinking of it. He's a kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, it's yeah, fair enough. Hmm. Uh, my concern was there's a scene where the kid is very, very cavalier about eating cookies when he knows he has food allergies. Hmm. But point taken. Yeah, point yeah. taken. Uh, just saying that while I uh, while I don't have an allergy that severe, I can completely sympathize with the kid. There was once a time when I was going to my first sleepover with friends, and my mom didn't sleep all night because I had to give myself a needle for insulin the fir uh, for the first time without a family member around. Uh, Modest Heroes, Life Ain't Gonna Lose, went above and beyond to show me how I felt when I was seven. Uh, thanks, guys. Not crapping on you, Bibs. No, no. Just giving you an alternate thought process. I uh, love you guys sincerely. Not your type one. That makes sense. Uh, that makes okay. perfect sense. Thank you so much for writing. I love... Um I love it when we talk about movies and someone's coming at it from a more personal perspective and that allows me to view the film more from that perspective and think about it more from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the child cavalierly picking up a cookie, when in the course of the short film, time is, of course, collapsed and mm -hmm. we see only like the big moments of this kid like constantly worrying about food. So when you only see the moments where his mom is telling him to be worried about food and then there's a scene where he's not... Mm -hmm. It kind of sticks out a little, but 
the point is certainly made. He's a little kid. He's not really there yet, and he's not that hyper aware yet. It makes mm. perfect sense. In any case, it's a very lovely short. I just happen to like the third one better. Okay. Yeah. Um, excellent. I didn't no, see the film, so I can't comment. I'm, I'm grateful for the letter. Thank you so much. Here is a letter from Helen. Hello, Helen. Hi, uh, Helen. Hello, guys. Uh, this. This is the first time I try to write in English to native speakers, so I really hope you guys are able to understand me. We'll, we'll make it through. We're doing great. Uh, I'm studying filmmaking, and I just wanted to say that you became my favorite film critics. Oh, oh thank you. Um, I admire how you always have so much sensibility and knowledge when talking about a movie, but still make it accessible and easy to understand. I really wanted to know your opinion about some Brazilian movies, mm. and I have some suggestions. The first one is a film called Bacurau that did make its way over here. Uh, it was really big here in Brazil uh, and even became a meme to ask, have you watched Bacurau? <laughs> uh, I think that the premise there in the USA was affected by the virus, or the premiere, excuse me, there was affected by the virus. But I saw other American critics talking about it like your friends at breakfast all day. Um, ah. Well, there you go. Yeah, they, they reviewed it over there. Yeah. We didn't get around to Baccarat. No, sorry about that. Um, also, there's a movie called A Dog's Will, uh, a.k.a. O Auta Dao Compadecida. I probably just murdered that. Mm. Uh, from the year 2000. That is probably the most beloved movie here, but I never see people from other countries talking about it. I wonder if this is because the humor and culture in this movie is too specific to Brazilians. Mm. Anyway, if someone can understand this movie, it is you. Uh, I... And I wanted to ask, what is your experience with Brazilian cinema? Thank you, a fan from Brazil, Helen. Uh, I always love learning about the fil uh, the films, not just films, but the music, the culture, uh, the art that is enormous in other countries that we don't get here in America. Americans yeah. are, in terms of worldwide culturally culture, completely illiterate. We uh, we we get very little, and it gets very little play when it does. Yeah, we, we we think of ourselves as the ones who export. Everybody needs to see our stuff because we're so bloody important. Uh, we don't learn other languages. We're not aware of yeah. other uh, cultures. We're so uh, unaware of the globe yeah. that you can make up a country for a thriller, and it sounds okay to most audiences. <laughs> Like now, as somebody that sounds like a joke, that's true. That's true. Yeah, there's a lot of fake yeah. countries that people would be like, "Yeah, like, Latveria is probably real. That sounds plausible, right?" Oh no, it's the ambassador from Matobo. Matobo is not a country. The interpreter. <laughs> Matobo is something you made up. Uh, well, they made that one up because they didn't want to make an individual country look bad. I suppose not, but yeah. it's not a country. <laughs> and, I know, I and know. it's clearly standing in for something, right? They're yeah. kind of like blending together a bunch of cultures. No, I agree. Uh, so, uh, as, as a kid who spent a lot of time playing Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, I was always annoyed when they made up a country, because I knew them. I was looking through that almanac a lot. Uh, but, yeah, we don't get uh, to really know international stars in the same way people no. from other countries do. Like, in Europe, they're passed around a little bit more freely. Mm -hmm. you know, Bollywood stars are better known kind of globally, except for in America. Although that's changing because Netflix has been putting a lot of Bollywood films on, lot, on their channel. A lot. So, They've been really committed to it. So yeah, if you're into Bollywood, boy howdy, Netflix is a good place to be right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always really, really fascinating to find out about things that are huge in other countries and just never caught on here. Well, I'm, I'm a I'm, big fan of Asterix. There you go. Uh, Asterix is a, a huge, I don't know how huge in France, but it's well known in France. It's a yeah. French comic uh, created by René Goscinny and Albert Uderzo back in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace, Albert Uderzo. He passed away recently. Oh, I didn't know that. That's um, Yeah, the original Asterix artist. 
And yeah, it's about the Roman occupation of France and how one village in France was never occupied by the Romans. And the comic book uh, posits that it's because they had a druid living there that could blend the magic potion that made them super strong and invincible. And so they would just down magic potion, just trash any Romans who came close by. And the Romans, of course, were all buffoons. It's great. It's it's full of funny wordplay and little funny in jokes. But Uh, a lot of the, a lot of those jokes don't translate to America because they're involving uh, French language and Mm. French culture. So Asterix is good because, is, um, as Americans, we could get the gist of it, and there's a lot of physical humor, and we could still appreciate it. But this is something that's actually at the heart of a lot of why many things don't come to America. The American marketplace is already full, like very full, mm-hmm. of American films and television. And if you try to release an international film into that marketplace that doesn't fit into some very specific boxes, like there are various genres which are just easier to get a movie released. Mm. Um, horror movies tend to play over very well over here. We'll get a lot of those action movies sometimes. Or, uh, or if we get a high profile foreign language release, it's usually seen as uh, like kind of a, an awards push or a prestige, prestige film. Yeah. Uh, never mind that, you know, if, if you want to talk about sort of like a, a good trashy Brazilian film, have you seen Elite Squad? No, it's, just, it's just a dumb police thriller, but it was sold as the sort of like very classy sort of thing. Right. But um, when it was like late a, 2000s, that one. there's a lot of films that don't really translate over here because a lot of the storytelling involves uh, wordplay, cultural uh, elements that are perhaps unknown to a typical American audience or even a particularly cinema conversant audience. Mm-hmm. Um and as a result, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that just never comes here at all under the assumption that we wouldn't be interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sucks. And you're right. It makes us, uh, uh, it makes it's like we have blinders on to the majority of the world. And that sucks. Coming to Brazilian cinema. Uh, we've actually gotten this question a fair amount. I am not as conversant in Brazilian cinema mm-hmm. as I would like to be. Uh, that's just the truth. That's true for, frankly, way too many countries in the world that I just, I haven't had a chance to really delve. We live in America. I think apart from India, we we produce the the highest number of films. Uh, Uh, Yeah. Yeah, overall. um, I I think that's still true. But um, it's ridiculous how much we don't have access to, largely because we don't know to request it and because uh, American studios don't want the added competition anyway and they don't think there would be a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming this kind of catch-22 um, but more stuff is available on streaming. That's great. When I was growing up, there was one Brazilian film that I would watch constantly, mm. and that uh, is Black Orpheus. Black Orpheus is quite good. Black Orpheus is fucking amazing. If you've never seen it, this is this. However, this is like saying like, you know, <sighs> Casablanca is a good American. Yeah, film. exactly. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, I think this one's pretty well known. But for those of us who are in America who haven't seen a lot of Brazilian cinema. I highly recommend Black Orvis. It's the story of Orpheus, you know, the 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 the, uh, the the artist whose uh, love died and went to the underworld, and he had to bring her back. And uh, it's set uh, during in, Carnival. Yeah. yeah, during Carnival in Brazil, uh, everyone's dressed up as their characters from uh, Greek myth um, in costumes for Carnival, and. Yeah, it's hard to say how much of it is supernatural and how much of it is just real and parallel. Mm. Um, it's a story that works really, really well, no matter how well you know the language or if you're just mm. going with subtitles. Um, it's one of my favorite films 
of mm. that part of my life when I was just experiencing uh, art film for the first time. Mm. Uh, I'm a big, big fan. I know you're a it's, fan of Coffin Joe. Uh, Coffin Joe, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Co- Coffin Joe is sort of like a combination of Elvira and the Crypt Keeper, uh, mm-hmm. and he had his own sort of horror world. Uh, he dressed like a, an old-timey undertaker. He had the big top hat and the cape, and he just did hor- horrendous things in defiance of God. It was really right. wonderful. Uh, Black Orpheus, by the way, is on the Criterion channel. I just Great. checked. Great. Please check that out. Um, it's really great. But, yeah, Brazil uh, has... You know, I've encountered a good cross-section of Brazilian films, I'm, I'm happy to say. I'm not an expert. I would never, you know, claim to be. I would never write an article about, you know... The full, must see full, full cross section of, yeah. of Brazilian films, but I really like Hector Babanco's Pichota, uh, which is a film about uh, kids living on the streets, just homeless kids, mm. and sort of their their trials and how difficult things I are. I think I saw that. You saw Pichota? I think okay. I saw that. That's, that sounds very familiar. Uh, you might you might mispronounce it as Pixot. Um, yeah, I think I saw that in film school. Okay, yeah, it's it's really 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 yeah. good. I've I've always liked films about. <laughs> This is gonna sound horrible about street kids, mm. uh, like kids who kids and like young boys in peril are usually. It's it's like a weirdly rich subgenre. It's, it's very Dickensian. Yeah, you yeah. know. Yeah, um, yeah. Black Orpheus is really ter- uh, terrific. I reviewed one just recently called Invisible Life. Oh yeah, which you I thought love was that. really really terrific. Yeah. Uh, what other? I saw um, a really terrific film called Madame Sata, uh, which mm. was about a real life. Kung Fu drag queen folk hero nice. that came from I think Rio de Janeiro, but it, Brazilian and uh, uh, Madame Sata was like the the drag queen name, and he was actually just a, a kind of an o- angry, oppressed uh, practitioner of the the martial arts, gay man living in hmm. in uh, Brazil at the time. Uh, the, the great thing about like exploring international cinema in America is like usually the crap doesn't make its way over here. Yeah. Um, tend, but as a, it's not necessarily the crap as well. Sometimes it's just only the mainstream stuff makes it over here. Yeah. So that's that's um, the other that's the opposite side of that coin. I, I, I hate to, to be a cliche, but I did love City of God. Uh, yes, yeah. that was a big oh, yeah. deal here in the one. states. Uh, Central uh, Station. I think I saw that when it came out a long, okay. long time ago. But that was a big Oscar contender. Yeah, and and notice we're talking about like we're remembering just all of the Brazilian films we've seen. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're I, not like kind of. I'm. We're expressing our limitations here. Yeah. We we freely admit that we don't know everything about everything. And mm. when it comes to uh, international cinema, uh, unless we've made a concerted effort, there's probably a lot of gaps in our knowledge. And we freely admit that Brazil is one of them. But we do want to talk about the films that we have seen because yeah. the films we have seen are largely very good. Um, yeah. Anyway, we've, we've had to do so much for work. It's so hard to do stuff just for fun and just to better yeah, ourselves. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad I have been able to, to consume as much uh, Brazilian cinema as I have. I'm, just, I'm trying to think of what else I've seen. Oh, I saw The House of Sand. Not The House of Sand and Fog, mind mm. you, but The House of Sand it's with uh, Fernando Montenegro. Um yeah, it's a mother-daughter relationship movie, and I highly recommend that one. Seek that one out as well. And yeah, golly, I really wish I could just <laughs> say more. I always wish I could say more. Don't we all? Yeah, I wish I, I wish I had like a good cross section of just every country, but yeah. I just can't. Yeah. Uh, here's another uh, letter that speaks to something kind of similar. This one okay. comes from Anthony. Uh, Greetings, critically acclaimed team. I hope this letter finds you well during these challenging times. As I write this, it's been about ten weeks. Since voluntary self-isolation, self-isolation began up here in the great mild north, <laughs> and I'd be lying if I said I did not miss going to the movies. Uh, I miss it, too. Yeah, we all I, do. I miss go- but you know what I don't miss? Blockbuster season. 
Like, I I'm am kind of grateful that it, I, that way it's just I'm sliding actually, past us. I'm actually year. pretty zen about it. Yeah. Like, yeah, part of me does kind of wish I could see the new Fast and Furious, but at the same time, I'm cool. It's a lot yeah. less pressure right now. We yeah, can all yeah, just chill, watch what's on, what's available on TV, appreciate some smaller movies. It's pretty good. Yeah, I, I would rather see you know a dozen to the stars, for instance, mm-hmm. than you know, see Black Widow on time. Yeah, like I don't care. I don't care. I, I don't entirely uh, anyway, agree with you, but I understand uh, your point. I can only imagine what it's like for you fine gents who spend as much time at screenings or in Whitney's case, projecting films. I hope that both of you. Uh, you as well as film fans the world over are not experiencing too much withdrawal from cinema going. We'll get together. We'll we'll get through this and we'll do it together. Thank you. Uh, with focus currently on home viewing, I wanted to provide a PSA for your listeners who live outside the U.S. Mm. Most people are aware that subscription-based services like Netflix and Amazon Prime have offerings that, due to limited licensing agreements, are specific to their area. For instance, your choices for the streaming club involving westerns on Amazon Prime included Johnny Guitar and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Neither of these titles are listed on the Canadian version of Prime. Yeah, sorry about God that. God damn it. Okay. It sucks. Yeah. Uh, the Magnificent Seven does appear as an offering, but it requires an additional subscription for the MGM library. Uh, Paint Your Wagon was actually the, the one streaming, uh, streaming club choice that was included with Amazon Prime Canada. Uh, I just couldn't bring myself to watch that interminable thing, so I offer my heartfelt thanks to you and every one of your listeners who took that particular bullet so I didn't have to. Uh, it's Paint still your smart. wagon blows. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Oh my god. There's so many of like the worst movies ever that people don't talk about as the worst movies ever just because no one's bothered to watch them in decades. Paint your wagon, wagon is... It, it's one of those. It's one yeah. of those things where I'm just like, if I see a list of like the worst movies ever and there's not even a mention of Paint Your Wagon, I'm just like, you're I not, don't know how much research you did. You're not, you're not digging deep <laughs> enough, man. I question you. Anyway. I, I read those lists and they're always from like less than 10 years ago it's just like I, recent bad movies and some re- of them even aren't like super bad they're like, just like kind of forgettable you know I'll look at these lists just to like try to jog, jog my memory maybe see if there's something that I missed and mm. I recently read a list of like the worst so and so movies mm. ever and they were all from post 2000 yeah, and I'm like yeah. come on <laughs> and then there's like one gimme at the end from like 59 or yeah, something yeah, yeah ridiculous anyway I had initially thought that the regional licensing issue was somehow overcome by Tubi TV it was when you listed your home viewing choices for science fiction movies on that service that I realized this was not the case. Damn it. Alas, being in Canada means I do not have access to Day of the Triffids or Fire and Ice via Tubi TV. Fortunately, my fellow critically acclaimed fans have come through and voted for Hell Comes to Frogtown, which is available. Oh, you lucky soul. Uh, I was a big wrestling fan of the 80s, so I enjoyed watching the late Rowdy Roddy Piper in action as the ultra-potent hero battling his way through a nuclear war-ravaged wasteland. However, I was pretty bummed out to discover that he didn't suplex anyone this time around. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen Rowdy Roddy Piper suplex a frog. That would have been great. Like a giant frog wearing a fez. Should have had like a frog dummy that he just like mashed into the floor or something. Wasted wasted opportunity. You you had the mask, just stuff it. You had the piper. Like what the Uh, on the dance front, I suspect Sundell Bergman's Dance of the Three Snakes is a little too short for Bibb's liking. <laughs> oh, you just know I like dancing. I'll continue to try to keep up with the streaming club viewings whenever I can, so long as it's not paint your effing wagon. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love the idea of watching old movies with a large group and hope that self-isolation has led to others to discover the joys of delving into the back catalogs of Hollywood as well as to the film industries of other parts of the world. Before I move on from uh, the subject of streaming services, however, I would like to mention some other online streaming services with uh, which your listeners may have access. Okay. So write these down. Okay. Um, anyone with a library card should check out their local library's website mm-hmm. to see if they offer digital services like Canopy, mm-hmm. that's Canopy with a K, Hoopla, or Overdrive. I don't know Overdrive. I've heard okay. of Hoopla, but I haven't used it, and I've used Canopy before. Okay. Uh, Canopy is a source for videos that focuses on independent art films, documentaries, TV series, educational content, self-help videos, and the like. I think Canopy also has... I'd have to look into this, but Canopy might have those wonderful BBC Shakespeare productions from the early 80s. Mm. Uh, On uh, Shakespeare's anniversary, they decided to just do all of them. Yeah. Like the BBC did a production of every single one of Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. If you ever want to see a live production of the Henry VI trilogies, Mm. like the entire York Tetrad... They're all on BBC. How many times do you get a film of Henry the Sixth? Not often. It's never. Okay. Uh, uh, Hoopla is more pop culture oriented and offers popular movies, TV shows, comics, graphic novels, audiobooks, and music. Overdrive is for book lovers and is an online library of ebooks and audiobooks. Do that stuff. Mm hmm. That all sounds great. Local libraries will vary in terms of the services they offer, and cities in my area have found that some have all these services, while some only have one or two. Libraries in smaller municipalities may not have any. Uh, in terms of their content, there will also be variation. Uh, Hoopla, for example, may have Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> if you access it through one particular library system but not in another. Uh, incidentally, you shouldn't be too upset if you don't get to see Ghosts of Mars. It's just Ice Cube and Natasha Hentges spending 90 plus minutes refusing to admit they're fighting an enemy they can never beat. Uh, I think that's the point, but I, okay. <laughs> I, I, I have a weird weakness for Ghosts of Mars, but that's just because John Carpenter has this uncanny ability to get under my skin. I, I think Ghosts of Mars is a little like it's not his best movie by it's, any stretch, but it's also not quite as bad as its it, reputation it's, makes out. It's only a little underrated. <laughs> I think not, that movie would be improved dramatically if Jason Statham and Ice Cube switched roles. Yeah, well, because the whole Ice point Cube is was Ice, the bigger star. Ice Cube was the bigger star. I appreciate that. I understand why, but like, I but Ice Cube plays like Desolation Jones or something like that, and he's like right, right, the right. the toughest badass in the whole galaxy. But Ice Cube had already started kind of moving away from that persona mm-hmm. when Ghosts of Mars came out, and he was just a little cuddlier than mm-hmm. Jason Statham at the time. I just think probably a little stronger, but yeah. anyway. Anyway, he, uh, he goes on to say, to switch gears, I have a question regarding your abstaining from reviewing certain movies. Specifically, I'm talking about the films where one or both of you have a personal connection to a member of a film production. Ah. For example, Whitney has mentioned on a number of occasions his affiliation to the New Beverly Cinema. I work there. Yep. Uh, which has resulted in his, his recusing himself during all discussions about films by Quentin Tarantino, who owns that particular venue. Now, hypothetically speaking, what if members of the film industry were among your Patreon subscribers? Would that mean you... Uh, you wouldn't review the movies they worked on. Uh, if we Ooh. knew about it, I mm. guess. I mean, it's hard also, to... S- okay, well, we'll talk about some What if you knew of an individual who only has a minor role in a movie, such as an extra, or someone who only has one line in a film? Would it matter if the actor with the single line were someone really famous, such as Steven Spielberg in The Blues Brothers? Uh, in terms of folks behind the scenes, what if your acquaintance is a location scout or a wardrobe assistant? Right. These are people who unquestionably contributed to the making of a film. But if I were friends with these individuals, I'd have to say that their influence on my opinion in the movie they worked on would be negligible. So I would not hesitate to review the film in question. I was curious about your views on this subject. Uh, uh, that is whether or not you would abstain from reviewing films that patrons or people with smaller roles were a part of. Uh, your loyal listener, Anthony. Uh, let's talk about the first one, uh, the whole streaming service uh, angle first, because that's mm-hmm. I think it's a shorter conversation. Um, 
So yeah, on the Critically Acclaimed podcast here on the Critically Acclaimed Network, we have a section called the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we review not just new releases, but also older movies that either one or both of us haven't seen for one reason or another. Mm. And we go through various streaming services, because that's what most people have access to, and we're trying not to limit ourselves to only one streaming service, so we've been bouncing around a lot of the bigger ones. Mm. However... As has just been brought out, uh, we do have an international audience, and unfortunately, not everything is equally available in every region. I do not understand why that is still a thing. I, do, I understand, like, previously when you had to, like, press DVDs differently for, like, different, mm. you know, different coded DVD players, or maybe you had a PAL player instead of a VHS player. I get it. Now it seems like that's increasingly irrelevant, and I feel like things should just be kind of available. Maybe that's me looking well, at things with like rose-colored glasses and well, we, we, thinking we things should be better than they are. But we, yeah, we dream for the utopia when yeah. there is just sort of an infinite repository of all cinema, and uh, you know what, what Netflix said they were going to do and then never did. Um, yeah. Still frustrated to this day about sort of the paltry film collection on a lot of these streaming services. Yeah, which is why we bounce around mm. a bit. However, we do need to uh, break out and do a few other ones because we've been mostly focusing on Netflix, Amazon, and but, Shutter and Tubi. But we do need to do a few more, and we're going to start doing a few more. We'll probably do HBO Max soon as well. Um, as for the second question, which is a conflict of interest. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with the term, a conflict of interest is because we need to speak candidly. Maybe not objectively, that's a fantasy, but candidly, honestly, openly, critically about art. If there is a distinct perception or genuine concern that our opinion may be suspect due to a direct connection to people who made the film, mm. uh, typically a film critic will bow out. Yeah. And just say, eh, I can't in good conscience. I used to be roommates with the guy who directed it. Mm. I don't feel like I can be honest about it. Uh, without hurting his feelings or whatever or it might even if i am honest about it it would look bad because we had such a personal connection i'm just if we well, talk can, about it i'm not going to review it and anything that would make you uh suspect our yeah. ability to be honest uh, yeah. that that's our superpower and it's also our greatest weakness as film critics mm -hmm. as our honesty we have to be honest we have to be honest about how we felt if we really really loved something that's awful we'll have to say that and even, we have to explain and, and why we have to explain why and yeah. we can say this is awful but you know what i enjoyed it uh yeah, for xyz reasons um, so if if I'm taking money from Quentin Tarantino, yeah. because I work for the that's guy, an obvious conflict of interest because conflict, money is yeah. changing hands. So uh, it, I, if I said I hate this movie, mm -hmm. that's maybe against my interest. Right. If I said I love this movie, that would sound like an advertisement. Yeah. So I just recuse myself. I don't I don't uh, review those movies. I remember yeah. when White House Down came out, Ben Mankiewicz uh, didn't review it. Because he's in it. Yeah, it's a little cameo. He's, it's just, a little cameo. He's just a, new, a talking he, head on a TV. He's a newscaster but... in one scene, but he's in the movie. However, that's a good point because we know Ben Mankiewicz. Mm -hmm. You know, we've I've I've done a few movie review shows with him. Uh, Whitney, we've, we've you've talked. I've I think I've talked to him once or yeah, twice. Yeah, we, 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 we know him to say hello. Um, um, however. Um, I don't know him well enough that I don't feel like I could review a film that he had a small cameo in. Honestly, yeah, I don't feel like you know I'd be like, oh, Ben would be so hurt. I don't think Ben gives a shit. <laughs> I really don't. I think that's not an issue. And so there are varying degrees of this, obviously. There are obviously certain lines which should never be crossed. Um, but we are all doing our best, and we want to have as much integrity as we possibly can. Mm. Uh, hopefully all of it, but we're doing the best we possibly can. And so, uh, yeah, it's part of the business. It's an interesting and weird part of the business. I don't know if that's 
a thing in other businesses where it's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm an orthodontist, and I know the orthodontist that did your braces, so I can't really tell you if I think they're they're setting your teeth. No, right. uh, I don't think that's a thing. As for the issue with a Patreon, if if oh a, yeah, if a famous director became a patron of ours, first of all, what are you doing listening to us? Don't make movies. That's weird. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but thank you for listening, famous filmmaker uh, yeah. or producer, actor, whoever you are. Uh, unless they're like reaching out to us and telling us to like change our opinions. Uh, I don't think we're like we're not like beholden to them in the same sort of way. I don't know. I think they're tuning they're... into us to hear honest film reviews, and yeah. uh... but at the same time, there's the there's the appearance of impropriety because they're giving us money. Yeah. So I think it's one thing if you work in craft services and we have no way of knowing you even worked on something. Hmm. If you're directing something, or if you've written a film, or if you've starred in it, um, we probably can't review that in official capacity if you're a patron. Um, so if Spielberg wants to become a patron that's fine I'll just never review a Spielberg movie again he's more than welcome to (laughs) Spielberg if you're listening I'm sorry that the one time I interviewed you I talked about farts um it was for the BFG. Uh, it was, was relevant. Say, I was about to say the BFG is full of farts. I was. It was relevant to the conversation. I want to make that clear. It's the climax of the movie, Stephen. <laughs> the BFG is way underrated, Stephen. That is such a good film, Stephen. I'm calling you Stephen because you're a patron. Because <laughs> you might be a patron. Because uh, you're such good pal. If you want to contribute to the show, fine. I'll stop reviewing movies. I think that's fair. Hmm. Um, but yeah, when it comes to like really below the line stuff, like I've reviewed. I know people who worked as like. PAs and drivers on things. They're not creatively involved with the movie. They're not making money if the movie makes a profit. Yeah, yeah. That's not the, it's not quite the same thing. Mm. So, um, however, yeah, it's it's sticky and it's something that we're all very conscious of and we're all trying to do our best and make sure that we yeah, so. do the right thing at all times. So, as, as long as I'm taking money from Quentin Tarantino, though, I'm not going to talk about his movies. As well, you shouldn't. Like, I'm, I've been able to sort of comment on sort of the effect his films have had on the industry at large, which I've always felt is a little safer, but I can't comment on uh, the actual content or what I think of some of these movies. Well, yeah, because Quentin Tarantino has put such a stamp on the industry, it's almost impossible to not bring him up ever. Like, Mm. if you talk about indie films in the 90s, at one point you're going to say, and Tarantino was big. Mm, you got to at least say that. But that's not a critical analysis. Talk about sort of of the the things he does in his movies without giving giving an actual opinion. That's historical fact. Yeah, That's not a matter of opinion or or anything that could be bought. Or or even analysis, really. Um, Anyway, thank you for that question. That's a really important question. Thank you for... for, uh, Bringing up our integrity. We like to think we have some. Mm. Um, here's a letter from Max. Hi, Max. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, finally after over one and a half years mm. of listening to and catching up on Cancel Too Soon, and more recently the critically acclaimed network, I only just now listened to your newest episode. <laughs> <laughs> I admire wow. your dedication. Wow. Okay, well, go back to the B-movies pod. No! Oh, never go back. Never go back. There's st- a lot of those are still. We online. didn't make yeah. any podcast prior to this week. They're That's all it. gone. <laughs> Deleting them from the internet. Well, thanks, Big Brother. Um, uh, no withdrawal symptoms yet, but I will keep you updated. I'm a German film student studying screenwriting, but also have written and directed quite a few audio dramas, which uh, which I was very delighted to hear Whitney does too. I'm writing another one now, yep. if I ever can. Um, and you have led me numerous times to think a different way about movies and my own craft with your valuable insight and perspective. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, 
That is to say uh, that I always agree with you. I think it's fifty. I don't always agree with you. I think it's fifty-fifty. But where would be the fun in that? Uh, but yes, I was very glad to find that in all the hype, someone saw the new Joker movie the same way I did. Yeah. Uh, you guys are well spoken and love each other at times just as much as film and TV, which makes listening to you just great. William, mm. you're a good man, and you're a good person too. Oh, and I love thank you, man. you. Well, uh, I found you. <laughs> Jesus. Who's I'm, not, that? I'm secretly a supervillain. Um, I found you through nothing more than coincidence because I was looking up reviews of Mercy Reef, the, <laughs> the Aquaman pilot. God, I, which, we covered that years yeah, ago. Yeah, which I like way more than you do. I instantly loved the idea in the format of Cancel Too Soon and must admit that it took me a while to realize that I knew you two already from the Schmodown. Hey! Uh, since then, your podcast has been with me through every new phase of my life and it always feels like coming home. Oh, thank, oh, thank you, so you. Much. That's really flattering. Thank you. Uh, I have suggestions for Cancel Too Soon. The Loner and The Westerner, both 50s black and white Western shows that lasted only one season. Well, we have some good news about The Loner. We, we have The Loner. We have The Loner. We were actually going to do it towards the end of last season, but uh, things kept getting pushed back you know the, and the, yeah, and the, the pandemic ruined our schedules and uh yeah, so we kind um, of had to put it aside for the yeah. time being but we have the loner we do have the loner we do to plan to get to it yeah, yeah. That's, so that's, that's a, definitely we, have, we don't lloyd, have lloyd bridges show yeah we don't have the westerner but i will make sure we mm. keep an eye out for it uh, but since you're critics i thought i would ask a question that has bothered me for a long time hmm. and hope you haven't answered it already how do you say the academy judge directors what goes into saying that's good directing or whoops that sucked I find this very hard because various departments and actors all work on a film who should get credit and for what tends to get blurry. And mm. do you have a favorite German film? <laughs> Stay safe and maybe one day I'll catch up on all the TV failed TV shows there are. Probability be damned, although that would be a very sad day. Um, so that's actually a good question about the Academy Awards. Um, so the Academy Awards, as you're probably aware, is you know yearly award show that give out awards in a variety of categories representing different fields within the industry. Some of them are very, very clear. Mm. Best adapted screenplay. If we think the story existed before and you turn it into a film, that's an adapted screenplay. It's a very specific job. Cinematography, very specific job. Makeup, very mm. specific job. Directing, managing all of that stuff. Mm. And then best picture... Producing that. Producing that. It's not actually called Best Producer, but it does go to the producers. Mm. So that's probably the distinct uh, distinction right there, which is Best Picture is for Best Production overall, and Best Director tends to go to the film, at least I think in theory, which has the clearest vision which has seems to be which is an amorphous thing. An yeah. amorphous thing. It's very of course it's amorphous. These yeah. are all like an attempt we're, to we're, we're, put a label on art as better than yeah. other art. Of yeah, course it's yeah. subjective and amorphous, but I think that the idea is and you know they do go hand in hand a lot. Less so in the last decade, which I think is interesting, but for the majority of the academy, usually a film wins both. Hmm. Um but the idea is yeah, this film regardless of whether it's the best film of the year was uh, astoundingly uh well put together everything seems like it's telling uh a distinctive story in a distinctive way that i think is a big part of direction i also think and i don't know how true this is because i don't haven't really interviewed anyone in the academy about it for me i feel as though best director should also factor in what are they like on set? Like I the, actually like think the personality. I think maybe not personality, right. but like for example, um, um, Alejandro uh, Inarritu mm. uh, won the Best Director Academy Award for Birdman. Mm. 
it's not my favorite movie of that year, but it's an achievement, certainly a distinct achievement, and I get it. I think it's the best Inuritu film. Probably. Mm. Um, I, I like The Revenant a lot. However, he also went for The Revenant, and for me, I wouldn't have voted for him for The Revenant, and the reason why is because the shit he put Leonardo DiCaprio through mm. was unnecessary. Well, t- you you put, you physically tortured him to get that performance. I'm not begrudging him winning an Academy Award for it, but I do feel like that if you're the kind of director who is putting your crew in some sort of peril, mm. you're not protecting your crew. That's part of the job of being a director. I'm not saying uh, Inderitu did anything criminal, well, but he, he I do think, it's, and I think in that case, it, yeah. it's a, it's a little bit hazy because uh, I think DiCaprio kind of requested that sort of abuse. He mm. he wanted to push himself as well. So, Arguably, yeah. but again, there's just comes a time where you're asking yourself, should we be asking this of our actors? Like you hear about how um, Joaquin Phoenix in Joker like nearly like busted his knee mm. because he was going above and beyond. I think it's the director's job to pull him back and say, Joaquin, try acting. <laughs> you don't need to physically kill yourself yeah. in order to play this role. It's unnecessary. So... I think maybe that might be a factor yeah, is how for, they are how they are interacting with how they are getting their story told on set. On the other hand, most of the people who vote probably haven't worked with that person before, so they might not know. Uh, it's it's actually and that's a very male thing, and it's something that's been really been under scrutiny in recent years. You know, actors, uh, directors putting their crew in peril or behaving like complete tyrants mm-hmm. in order to like get the shot. Yes. And, Pain will make and it better. Yeah. And there's always been yeah. kind of a romance about that, about yeah. these sort of tyrannical directors, how they're working really hard and they're being really cruel, but it's all in service of the art. In and the end, the movie's a, so good. Who ca- Pain yeah. is temporary. Film is forever. Mm. I've actually heard that as a piece of advice, mm. not as a tragedy, a piece of advice. It's not mm. worth it. You'll, you'll notice that that uh, women don't say things like that. Now I'm not, not sure. My if, experience. I'm not sure if you've seen Shutter's series Cursed Films yet. I'm familiar um, with it, but I haven't sat down okay. and watched it. I, I, I have, and it's it's only five episodes so far, and they're all pretty short. You can get through them all. But um, they were talking about uh, the Twilight Zone movie. Oh yeah. And how uh, the director of this, uh, John Landis, who directed one of the segments, it's very well known actually. Uh, oh, it was, was a huge, huge a, a, scandal. A gigantic happened, scandal yeah. about how he was not really paying close enough attention to the way the special effects were uh, going. Uh, there, he was going to have a real helicopter on camera while actors were running really close to it. They were shooting in the middle of the night up against mm-hmm. a cliff. It's just like the most unsafe possible conditions. The helicopter crashed and killed three people, mm-hmm. including the main actor and two children. And Kurt. Uh, films talks all about sort of the, the details don't they show that. that footage and they, they actually do show the footage i think so, that's in poor um, taste well i mean it's it's pre- it's actually presented very tastefully um the whole series is a little bizarre because it's called cursed films and you think it's gonna really lean into oh yeah and there's like ghosts and demons in the film and it's really badass it's actually a very sad series it's like mm-hmm. okay the poltergeist films they're they're cursed man and the director of poltergeist 3 said heather o'rourke is dead this is not fun, guys. This yeah. is actually really sad. This isn't a cool a t- urban legend. Yeah, this is a just a, 12, a really a twelve-year-old girl yeah. died of this horrible medical condition. Can we not romanticize her death? Can we yeah. just sort of be sad and visit her grave in Westwood? Uh, so, uh, uh, but the idea that John Landis was sort of this like cavalier dude who's just sort of being punk rock. Yeah, we're going to do something kind of dangerous, and he was actually so dangerous, people died. Yeah. Uh, and it makes me think about how many times, how many hundreds of times 
directors were equally cavalier, but they were just lucky enough that nobody was killed on set that day. Yeah. yeah. I've heard a lot of stories about, about that. Somebody, about how, like, somebody nearly died or somebody yeah. was probably even injured on set because mm. they were trying to get... Because of this kind of cavalier attitude. Yeah, let's just do it, man. Let's just mm. get the shot. Uh, Timothy Dalton told a story mm. about that and when he was making Flash Gordon. Mm. Um, there's a scene in Flash Gordon where he plays a guy who's fighting Flash Gordon on this movable uh, floor thing and there's spikes. Yeah. And the whole thing was... Um, Timothy Dalton was just like, that doesn't look safe. I'm not doing that. You need to get a stunt double. And they're like, Timothy, you don't, don't, don't be a diva. Just, just do it. And he's like, no, it's not safe. And indeed, a stuntman seriously got hurt because oh, it wasn't God. safe enough. Like these things yeah. happen. I mean, like, but, but then there's also like things that feed into the myth, like yeah. like Tom Cruise actually hanging onto the side of a plane. You know, which like, again, Tom Cruise is going into because Tom Cruise knows he doesn't have to do that. Yeah. Tom Cruise is famous enough. He's his career his, isn't writing fact, on whether or not he'll do the dangerous thing. He's you, I you could argue he, that that Tom Cruise is kind of like co-director of well, of all of his films. Actually, yeah. he, he plays a really active role in the creative process of yeah. all of the films he produces, yeah, especially he, now. Yeah, yeah uh, so he he chose to do. He's, he probably came to the director with that, saying, "Hey, he, what what can I? I can do? only how imagine do how much it costs to ensure my uh, Tom Cruise on a, a Mission Impossible movie. Oh, you know, kudos to him for for putting himself out there. Yeah. Also, Tom, you don't have to do it. Tom, you're sixty. Stop. Stop, <laughs> Tom. 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 Let, let Ilsa Faust take no one, over. Is this? Is, this, is I, I can't imagine. Like, no, just yeah. I'm worried this is going to be like how you go out. You know, is yeah, making a Mission yeah. Impossible movie like and maybe again, that's the dream, and, and but that'll just add to the romance. It's like he's so devoted that he could sacrifice his life. Horrible! No, it's really, really horrible. Yeah. Um, we've all heard the stories, and um... so yeah. <sighs> Does being that cavalier make them a good director that should, who should be yeah. re- rewarded for yeah. really pushing and straining and pushing boundaries? Or is that the sign of a very bad director because they're pushing and straining and the only way you can ba- literally cracking back? If the only way you can tell a story is to be bad to your crew, I don't think that's good directing. Hmm. Now, that said, I don't know how much of a factor that is. It's just something I would consider. Yeah. Like if I had heard... Like, again, yeah, Leo went into that, I assume, willingly mm. in The Revenant and knew he was going to get treated bad and be physically punished. And well, like, I know Joaquin Phoenix chose to emaciate himself and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's safe for them. Mm-hmm. I, I would rather protect my actors. So There's, there's a scene in The Revenant where uh, uh, Leo has to grab a fish out of a river and eat it raw. And he yeah. actually ate a raw fish right on camera. And, yeah. And of course, he gags on camera. He takes a bit bite of a raw fish and just and spits out all these fish guts because it's gross. Yeah. Not a lot of people eat raw fish. Well, not, not uh, that raw. Not Usually the, yeah. you cut it up. You know, you only get the good bit. You know? Exactly. Like, yeah. You don't just like grab a fish out of a river and just take a bite out of the belly. Yeah. But that's what he does in that movie because he's so hungry. And of course, when you're watching the movie, it's like, oh God, you're seeing Leo doing something daring in that scene. His character wouldn't do that. That's actually a bad performance. Yeah, his character would be like so hungry, it didn't matter what it tasted. Yeah, and, like. and his, he was also playing this like mountain survivalist dude who probably has done that before. Yeah. So does that make it a good performance no. that he did something daring? No, it actually makes it a bad performance because he did it badly. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, there's a ton of criteria people talk to. Yeah. Here's the thing when it comes to the Academy Awards they used to, when they sent out ballots, mm. have like a note. And they would recommend that people vote with their hearts. Yeah. Not with your head. Don't, with your don't heart. vote politically. Yeah, yeah. Well, not even politically. It's just a matter of, like, don't say to yourself, well, this is clearly the better film. Vote for the film you liked. Mm-hmm. That's the implication. Um, and as a result, I think there's a lot of people at the Academy who have been encouraged for one reason or another to not perhaps take it as... 
I don't want to say seriously because of course they take it seriously, uh-huh. but uh, y- you know, maybe not worry too much about it, you know, and just think to themselves like I saw all five films. I think mm-hmm. this this film was directed better. I'm not going to interrogate my thought process more than that. Boom, The Revenant. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. That's valid. You know, you've earned a spot at the Academy. As long as you're voting, I think that's fine, you know? Mm. So, anyway, anyway uh, let's move on. Uh, here is a letter from uh, bu- 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 Tomas. Hello, Tomas. Uh, Tomas from Sweden, a.k.a. Stubble McShave. Ooh. Greetings to the Beastmaster and to Moister McGool. <laughs> <laughs> I like that are, one. are you the Crypt Keeper? Ooh. Greetings to the Beastmaster and Moister McGool. Ghoul. <laughs> Tonight's nasty nuggets. I'm sorry. Uh, recently, you talked about famous plays done as movies. Uh, you've also mentioned that the Star Wars movies don't have many deep ideas. This we've both said. Uh, Comparatively, but yeah. This made me start thinking, what if you adapted Shakespeare into the Star Wars world? Ah. Uh, they could be movies where... Uh, which were not necessarily part of canonical Star Wars, but rather standalone movies set in the Star Wars universe. Uh, there are a lot of Shakespeare plays that could be adapted. Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, mm-hmm. to name a few. For the yep. Hamlet story, I would set it in the Jedi Council of a different era. Mm. The murdered, ki- excuse me, the murdered king would be the leader of the Jedi Council who would appear as a force ghost <laughs> to his old apprentice and nice. killed him. Nice. So, yeah, there are, go- there are ghosts in Star Wars. Ghost why not? Yeah, him? why not? Yeah. Well, okay, canonically... Qui-Gon Jinn was the first Force Ghost. Oh my god. Seriously? They're gonna... They will complain. Oh god. Look, if they're not complaining about the Star Wars holiday special... <laughs> it's not canon anymore. Yeah, actually... Because we J- don't want it to be. Actually, J.J. Abrams said it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, ha, ha. I'm gonna give Abrams credit for that. <laughs> like, doesn't, like, one of the, the relatives from the holiday special show up in, like, the Wookiee planet in a later film? I think I think in, like, Revenge of the Sith? Yeah, they I, showed think, it, I think they showed... Uh, so, yeah. so, yeah, it's canon. Uh, uh, the roles of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern would, of course, be played by two droids, yep. since R2-D2 and C-3PO had a similar role to those in, in, the two, in their movies. Yeah. Uh, there would be some action, but mostly it would be a dramatic piece. Oh, I long for that. Um, it, if it was all done in the Jedi Temple, the costs would be held quite low, and it wouldn't have to make over $700 million to be financially successful. If they started a series of Star Wars movies where they adapted Shakespeare plays, it would also add some weight to Star Wars and also make some kids more interested in Shakespeare. What do you think? Would you uh, would you like to see Shakespeare adapted to standalone Star Wars movies? Stay safe, Tomas from Sweden, a.k.a. Stubble McShave. Uh, I'm down. That's sure. a fun oh, idea. absolutely. Um... Now, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern was some. You actually showed me a comic book you had accumulated at one point. Yeah, um, so there's a there is a a play by Tom Stoppard, Mm. and he also directed a movie version starring um, Tim Roth and Gary Gary Oldman Oldman, and Um, and Richard Dreyfuss as well. And Richard Dreyfuss. It's called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, and it is about the story of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the two. Uh, hoi polloi everyman hmm. who get sort of roped into Hamlet's grand tragedy and suffer horribly as a result. Tom Stopper wrote a play that's all about everything that they did before, during, and after their scenes in that play. Yeah. And how they are basically cogs in this hmm. wheel of fate. Hmm. Um, 
It's a wonderful play. It's yeah, a very, very good. There's movie. A, a line of dialogue that the Richard Dreyfus character says. It's like uh, we we do we do on stage. Uh, we have the courage to do on stage the things most people do off, which is a kind of integrity if you see every exit as an entrance somewhere else. <laughs> which of course is the very meat of that play. Yeah. Um, uh, and and somebody found these two characters and put them in like every major scene in all of the Star Wars movies. Yeah. It's, it a, it's, they, it's a graphic novel called Tag and Bink are Tag dead. Tag and Bink. I couldn't it's remember like their names. Three individual issues of a comic book, and one is a story of these two just you know everyday joes who stumble their way through the original star wars trilogy and then later on we found out that they were kids during the prequel trilogy (laughs) and as a result what they do is they weave these two characters throughout the entire series so that a lot of the faceless stormtrooper characters were tag and bank (laughs) or tag and bank were there like you may remember uh uh in Return of the Jedi, when Mon Mothma says uh, Manny Bothans died to bring us these Death Star plans, uh, they knew Manny. Manny was a guy. Manny Bothans. Was the name of one guy. (laughs) And they knew him well. It's adorable. That's that's funny. They were the ones who accidentally Mm. deleted the planet Kamino from the Jedi files. That Mm. was them and they just screwed up something and they hoped nobody would notice. Surely it won't be important, right? Turns out to be a big plot point. Yeah, it's so absolutely it's, adorable. So kind it's, of it's cl- tangentially, it's kind of been done. Is my it, point. It's clearly for like deep cut Star Wars nerds who would understand all of that stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's really funny. Um, uh, and in fact, um, <laughs> they're still on Geekscape. Uh, if you, years oh, and years ago, I wrote uh, fake fake reviews of Star Wars sequels. Like, this is long before the Disney acquisition. Oh, yeah. Lo- long before. It's like 2009, the, the Force 2010. Yeah, it's like late, late 2000s. Uh, I, I decided just for you know for a yard, I wasn't even paid for this uh, to write reviews of uh, the Star Wars sequel films as if they had already come out. So I came seven up through with, nine, yeah, seven, eight, and nine, and I came up with uh, you know fake years and other things that were going on in the film industry, fake things that were going on along the time. Who uh, would direct them? Who would star? Yeah, yeah like uh, David Cronenberg ended up doing uh, Volume Nine. <laughs> I would kill for that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that'd be amazing. Uh, and. Uh, one of the gags was it's like and who, and who took over for John Williams after his accident? You know, I was like coming up with all these <laughs> these weird future things. It's he, like this he's one, alive, but for some reason he is mysteriously out of the film uh, industry. From what I understand, this is doing way better than uh, than uh, James Cameron's Battle Angel, which was still a rumor at the time, oh. and J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek: The Next Generation. You know, these things that yeah. were like. I was making all these stuff yeah. up, but I came up with a story, and I, the story I just lifted directly from Shakespeare. Right. It was speaking of Henry VI. It was the Henry VI story. There you go. Which is Henry VI story is actually the Richard III story. It's right. about the rise of Richard III. Um, everybody knows Richard III. They don't know the three plays that led up to it. Yeah. So um, uh, and yeah, I found that it's a lot more entertaining because when you take from Shakespeare and you're sort of exploring a lot of his themes of. Uh, uh, sort of the, the fickleness of history and these kind of richer, uh, cowardly, more complex characters, it actually would enrich Star Wars. Uh, I think, can, can you imagine something like Othello in the Star Wars universe? Well, uh, to be fair, I mean, the one thing I'm surprised you hadn't brought up yet was uh, one of the films that was the most influential on Star Wars, and we haven't gotten to it in episode zero yet, but I think we will eventually, uh, and it was also influential on Star Trek, was Forbidden Planet. Which is an adaptation of the ha- of uh, the Tempest, yeah, almost at the Hamlet. The yeah, Tempest. there's this incredible. If you, it's really important and great, and like it's it's you know a little corny in places, but mm. it holds up really good. It's stylish, it's fun. Um, but there's a sci-fi film called Forbidden Planet, which I think is a little less talked about today than it used to be, and that's a shame. Mm. Stars Leslie Nielsen back when he was a dashing hero type and not funny. 
And uh, yeah, he plays. He played, a, he, he played heroes and heavies for the bulk of his career. Oh yeah, I'm just saying most people know him from the later part of his mm-hmm. career because that's when his career really took off, mm-hmm. and he started becoming a reliable leading man, which is in the later part of his career. Odd career trajectory. Um, but he played the captain of a spaceship, and they're supposed to investigate this mysterious planet where uh, a mad scientist and his beautiful daughter have been living alone with a potentially a killer robot. And it turns out there's more to it than that. And if you've never seen it, I'm not going to tell you more. Other than it's really fantastic, and a lot of the things, a lot of the sci-fi tropes that we take for granted nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them either originated there or were codified there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's an adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. I really wish I could have been in the room when they pitched that because that's fucking awesome. (laughs) And you're right. It's kind of weird that we haven't done more of those. And it would make sense. A lot of things in Star Wars, as we've been talking about in episode zero, are kind of, hey, remember that scene from that one movie? Let's put it in Star Wars. Mm. Like, uh, we're, we're gonna, eventually we're going to do Ben-Hur on yeah. episode zero. And Ben-Hur is pretty much the chariot race. Uh, uh, the chariot race is pretty much just the pod race from Phantom Menace. They just lifted that and added different types of crazy sci-fi machinery. The Dam Busters is a World War II movie, and they lifted the entire climax and even edited the ending mm. of A New Hope to the rhythms of the Dam Busters, like to the exact same pacing of mm-hmm. it and the same shot length and the same uh, uh, imagery and the way that we cut between one action and another. Um, so this isn't even out of Star Wars's wheelhouse. This is actually very fitting for Star Wars well, to do something like that. It's fitting for Star Wars, but if you're doing like literal Shakespeare adaptations, not vaguely Shakespearean. You don't mean actually, the West Side Story version. You want just actually with the text. No, not with, no, I mean like, no, I mean like the West Side Story version. Oh, okay, but, uh, because I thought you were talking about keeping the original language. Not, not, not just the, the original story. Okay. Just keep yeah, the original yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, unfortunately, is not something Star Wars can do anymore. Uh, you don't think so? No, Star Wars is, it's so far up its ass, it's turned inside out at this point. It's, you know, look at films like Rogue One and Solo. These are just self-references now. Mm. Uh, there's no, I wish there were, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for originality in Star Wars. I've been hoping there was. When Disney bought it and said, we're going to make new Star Wars films, like, well, I don't need them, but if you're going to do something original. Yeah. Okay, they, they came out of the gate with well, a film that was, a lot of people said, essentially a remake of Star Wars. Force Awakens, yeah, which Force was Awakens. very familiar. Very, yeah, it's a Good, lot, a lot but of very same, familiar. A lot of the same story beats, but it was slick. It felt like older Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. They needed to prove a point. I understood why they did that uh, yeah. f- from like a marketing perspective. I think, I think that movie works. Um, yeah, and, and dramatically, it's perfectly satisfying. It's not the great, greatest film of all time, but it's enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, the film that followed that was Rogue One, and yep. that was so horrendously like. Not only are they going to redo something similar, they're actually going to tell like plot points that only make sense and will only have dramatic heft if you already have attachment to things that happened in previous movies. Yeah, it was kind of circling, it, it, it's, uh, yeah. circling itself at that. Yeah, point. it, it was yeah. already it was turning right into itself and not yeah. expe- giving anything new to the universe. No, nope. not didn't add any anything. new ideas. Didn't add it. You can, no. the films are the same without it. Uh, There's a reason why that story hadn't been told. Everyone's like, oh, it's a story that hasn't been told in Star Wars for like 40 years. Yeah, turns out there's a reason. It's actually not necessary. I'm not saying Rogue One. I actually like Rogue One more than you, even though I'm not a huge fan. I'm not saying it's an an unentertaining film to watch. I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. I think some of the characters are good. But 
Also, some of the characters, and indeed the majority of the characters, are massively underwritten. Yeah. Why? Because yeah. they only exist to be killed. They only Why do they yeah. only exist to be killed? Because they're allowed to because they don't exist in the rest of the lore. Hmm. If they were around in the other movies... It would mean something completely different. But because they introduced a whole new cast, they gotta die. As a result, the whole movie... Feels fatalistic. Yeah. Fatalistic and kind of pointless. And even though, like, oh, all these characters are dying. So what? They had to. Well, a, a, they had to, and B, they're so yeah, they're so badly written. Who cares if they yeah. die or not? It's like because two I yeah. had an emotional connection to, and yeah, I, and one of them was the droid. It was K2SL. a robot? Yeah. <laughs> that droid was awesome. I liked that droid. I liked Diego Luna. I wanted to like Felicity Jones, but her character development was kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked the idea of Donnie Yen's character, but, but they the, didn't really flesh him out at all. So but the, yeah. the the idea that Star Wars is now like this sort of very stringently structured pop offshoot of what George Lucas came up with mm-hmm. doesn't have room for this is actually just straight Shakespeare now yeah. uh, it's 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 too too daring it's too strange for something like Star Wars I, would I like to see it absolutely I would what, what's something I'm surprised that they're not doing <clears throat> a Star Wars anthology series on Disney Plus because they got the Mandalorian and that's this bounty hunter going around doing bounty hunter samurai movie western like, well, movie one thing. episode devoted to like one minor character yeah, typically sort of you know it's, it's a little episodic but there is a through line I, I haven't seen all of it but I liked what I saw okay mm. um, so that's fine but I think it would be a good idea to have a television series and maybe there's only like six episodes at a time because it would be expensive mm. um that's just Star Wars anthology stories. If you want to tell a story about a pocket in the Star Wars universe, you can tell it there. If you want to tell a story set in the Star Wars universe that doesn't connect to anything, you can tell it there. You get 50 minutes. You get a budget of whatever Disney can afford. They already have people working on, you know, costumes and sets and visual effects. So you get some of that. But I think that would be a really interesting idea. I think it would be a really good way to tell a variety of stories about a variety of different types of characters, many of which have been underrepresented in Star Wars, from a variety of different filmmakers who might otherwise have been either unable to direct something from Star Wars or only able to direct something like an episode of The Mandalorian. Mm. Not that that isn't cool, but you're working within someone else's framework. Like, I think about, like, what would Kathy Yan do if she got, like, a million and a half to do a Star Wars story in 45 minutes. Yeah. I would kill to see that. That sounds amazing. And just give her free reign. Just stay out of the movie's way. Tell a story that's going off in a corner or about some small character who has an action figure but isn't actually important. Go nuts. I, t- I tell a story. I love that. The, you can tell uh, small stories. You can tell big stories. Tell a story weird about stories. that weird witch from one of the Ewok movies. Or, yeah. We're just sort of like squeezing yeah. into straight fantasy in that Yeah, movie. that would be cool. It's like dragons and witches and wizards. Like, like, yeah. call, and like a castle, like a stone castle. I, uh, my fantasy is to tell a story about Dexter Jetster and uh, what he was doing <laughs> in between the wars when he was trying to stay apolitical but secretly help the rebellion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a cool story. I want to see mm-hmm. that story. There's a lot that can be done, and they haven't been doing it. It's really frustrating. Well, to be fair, they do a lot of comic books and books well, and that's things. That's true. All of that expanded universe. That's, that's stuff. all there, and we don't really follow a lot talking of that stuff. Talking about the movies. We are talking about the movies don't and the TV show. Those comics and books and I stuff. I just want to give credit where credit is due because yeah. there are stories like that being told, but we want to see them told cinematically, and that's what we're focusing on. Because right. I know some people are just like, hey, well, no, we know. 
<laughs> but we want to see him told cinematically. So yeah. anyway, oh, let's have we have one time for one more. One more. Here's a letter from Zach. Hi, Zach. Hi, uh, Zach. Hey, Bibbs and Whitney. This is the first time I'm writing to you guys, and your podcast has opened my mind about the many aspects of of how film can be art. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, wow, thank that. you. That's amazing. I'm a consistent listener to your podcast, and I was excited to learn about your insights into the art of film. As a nearly 20 year old college student, I have only recently begun a deep dive into film. From a young age, I've always been uh, engaged in movies. One of my earliest memories of film is asking my father how they made the original Star Wars after he showed it to me at an extremely young age. More Star Wars. There you um, go. It's, it's a formative yeah. film for a lot of people. As, as I've grown older, I've acknowledged that film has played an extremely large part in my life, and asking my dad that question was the beginning of my affinity for film. Star Wars began my curiosity with film, but I didn't truly realize my love for movies until I, f- uh, I forced my parents to take me to see Inception during mm. its opening weekend. Inception truly blew my mind as an 11-year-old, and through the years, I've begun to appreciate how much that film has led uh, to my love of movies. So my question for you two is, what film has begun your love for films and the craft of movie making in general? Hmm. My college studies in the, uh, my college studies in the major of speech communication has further allowed me to consider the impacts that film and other media have had on our lives. So it has caused me to take a deep dive into the impacts that film has had on my life. Thank you for everything you do, love. A stereotypical, passive-aggressive Minnesotan that happens to go to college at Iowa State University, Zach. Uh, <laughs> P.S. Go Cyclones. Uh, go Cyclones! Go Cyclones! Uh, thanks, yeah, Zach. I'll, That's I'll, a great letter. Um, your, your college has a better team than mine. We were the loggers. Oh, God. That sounds awful. Yeah. Um, went to University of Puget Sound. Go loggers. E- we, even we were embarrassed. <laughs> Um, Zach, first off, I envy you being at this point in your journey where there's like this like endless vista of great cinema before you mm-hmm. and you're going to discover that there are all these things that you really love and that there are all these things that inspired those other things and mm-hmm. that's going to take you to different types of movies from different parts of the world and different eras and different genres you didn't even know existed. What an exciting, wonderful time. I wish I could go back to that some days mm-hmm. because it's great. Everything feels like an, every movie <laughs> was, feels like an adventure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really, really cool. Uh, you're asking about what our formative films are. Um, we all have them. Um, yeah, some we've, we've we've talked about this on the length on our, our shows before, but uh, well, I think it bears repeating. Yeah, we can and I think uh, talk about it again. What's interesting for you know, I think for people like us is that you know, Winnie and I were both very uh, not that we knew each other, but we were we were taken with film at early ages. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like there was just one film that like ooh movies like. But I find that there were a couple of films that opened our eyes to what movies could be, even though we had constantly been watching TV and movies. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the big movie that uh, cracked my head open was actually kind of hard to remember because it's because I watched like three movies in quick succession. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've told the story before. I was a kid. We rented movies all the time. And my mom was tired of me renting cartoons all the time. So she said, okay, we're not renting cartoons until you watch these old movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, eh, old. And then we watched... Uh, <laughs> just like that. Just yeah. like that. It was very inarticulate. Mm-hmm. Um, but we watched uh, Strangers on a Train by Alfred Hitchcock, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Uh, Mrs. Miniver, which is one of the most important films of World War II, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And Citizen Kane, which even at the age of like, I think it was like seven which or eight. A, which is a film from the 40s. Which is a film from the 40s. Um, two of those are from the 40s, one of them from the 50s. Uh, even though Citizen Kane is considered kind of headier, I, I picked up the majority of what it was laying down, at least narratively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was completely riveted, and the whole world of cinema opened up to me, and I realized that all the stuff I would have been, been kind of shoveled as a kid still fun and I would still watch a lot of it but it was a very it was like an appetizer and there was so much other so much other substance and nutrition and and wonderful taste sensations that I could discover by discovering more about movies but there are other uh, formative films as well 
Um, I remember being very scared of horror movies as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like I would have recurring nightmares about uh, Chucky. Uh, I was terrified that Jason Voorhees would kill me in my sleep, so I'd sleep mm-hmm. with my light on. And it wasn't until I saw Evil Dead 2 Dead by Dawn mm-hmm. that the horror genre kind of unveiled itself to me like a flower. Because flowers do that, right? They, they bloom. They unveil themselves. Yes, yes. exactly. They take off their <laughs> Not to mix metaphors. Uh, but uh, the thing with Evil Dead 2 is, A, it's funny. Mm. Like, it's very, very funny. It's slapsticky and Three Stooges-y and uh, very accessible in a way a lot of other horror films kind of weren't because they were trying to really get under your skin. But the other thing about Evil Dead 2 is that it was very handmade. And even as a kid, even watching it on VHS where the quality wasn't great, you could still see how handmade it was. You mm. could still see the wire on the flying eyeball. You could still see that, like, the back of the evil witch in the basement, like, was broken open and you could see Ted Raimi in there a yeah. little bit, like, with his <laughs> underwear. Like, but, but here's the thing. Those weren't flaws for me. Mm. For me, that was showing that this isn't just a scary movie. I can appreciate it on that level. I have, you know, that level of imagination, but... Mm. It's also something that people made. People loved it. And that helped me connect not only with movies, but the production of movies. And get really, really excited about learning how all of these movies that terrified me were made. Mm-hmm. And the other movie, the last movie I'm going to point out, is just a movie that sort of unlocked art house cinema to me. I'd seen some. But for whatever reason, it wasn't until I saw David Lynch's Lost Highway. <laughs> and a movie that is just trying to be impenetrable but has enough clues that like you know it's supposed to make sense kind of that i just kept floating the movie over and over again in my head every single day for months after i saw it and it challenged me in a way that most other movies don't because most other movies are trying to be accessible Mm. so that was my big uh gateway film for art house cinema whitney what about yours um when when I was a young child, uh, they brought uh, The Wizard of Oz into our home. My parents did. Uh, they just sort of left me in a room with it, <laughs> and, and it started started my film education, I suppose. Um, the one that, and you know, all throughout my youth, actually, I was consuming a lot of films. But yeah, I wasn't really kind of properly obsessed yeah. until I was comparatively older. I was like maybe fifteen or sixteen when I really kind of started leaning into films in earnest. Um, one of the films that really sort of cracked my head open was another David Lynch film. I saw Eraserhead around yeah. that time. And Eraserhead, it's like, wait a minute, films can be like this? It's What's like, weird is that I had seen Eraserhead, but it was Lost Highway was the one that broke me open. Well, Lost Highway may, might have been a little bit more uh, accessible. Maybe. or uh, I, actually, I actually think it was uh, the chronology pretty, of it that made okay. it confused, that made it like more interesting to me, I think, okay. than even Eraserhead, which is, of course, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, filmmakers always like to... I hear a lot of interviews like this. People who like to sort of... It almost sounds like they're bragging. Mm. It's like, yeah, when I was I was nine years old and I was taken to see Satyricon and it really blew my <laughs> mind. It's like, you did not, you big fucking liar. <laughs> you saw Return of the Jedi like everybody else. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, Eraserhead was one of those films that really broke it open for me. Uh, a really, really important film to, to my upbringing and to just sort of my general outlook on film in, in general was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Uh, and... Not the film itself, because the film itself I actually find to be a little bit dull if you're not watching it with an audience. It's actually incredibly slow-paced, but seeing it in a theater with that sort of like wild, openly sexual, kind of naughty, super queer audience was a, a really formative experience for me, and I ended up seeing it you know about 100 times in theaters 
uh, just because that was a great scene to be a part of. And I, I encourage everybody to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, the, when you're a certain age. See it at least twice. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah when, when you're around 16 or 17. Certainly, certainly when the opportunity arises uh, again to go into a theater, mm. seeing Rocky Horror with a enlivened audience mm. is an experience that I think is a rite of passage for most filmgoers. Yeah, and yeah. I would not to take that away from anybody. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important, wonderful, weird, uh, uh, formative experience. Mm-hmm. I think I, everyone should go through it. And, uh, and and I've brought this up a lot before, and th- because this is kind of an embarrassing one to sort of come of age to. But when I saw John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness ah. when that movie came out, uh, it had a a bit of I mean, it's a, a wonderful horror film. I think it has a lot of really good scary bits. It's an unusual story for a horror, horror film. It's about an insurance investigator who's looking for a missing horror author and finds him in an imaginary city where he's like holding open a gateway where like this plague of madness is going to be unleashed and infect the world. Yeah, it's this really kind of an involved story. It's actually not very well written if you look at it as a screenplay, but yeah. I was really on its wavelength, I suppose. And it introduced these weird kind of existentialist notions into what was essentially just just a horror film in Hollywood's eyes that I realized, wait a minute, there's like a lot of ideas in yeah. films. You watch it in the mouth of madness. It's not necessarily the most sophisticated film, but when you're 16 years old and that thing blows your mind, man, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, there's ideas in horror movies. This is awesome. And this was after I had seen stuff like the shining, you know, yeah. the shining I thought was really scary, but I really wasn't on the wavelength of its ideas. Cause I was a kid. Also the shining, I think you have to be I a think... grown up to kind of get the line on some of that stuff. Yeah. The shining, a lot of, uh, the more interesting odd or thematic subtext is really subtextual in the shining in the mouth of madness is trying to throw you in the mouth of madness mm. and just make you roll around in the squishy bits. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally get that. That was an informative one for you. That's awesome. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, we've got mail. Yep. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Sorry we didn't get to your letters. We'll do more next week. Uh, you can always write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That's where we get our letters from. That's where you can, <laughs> that's where you can mail us. Um, and, uh, yeah, we would love to hear from you. So if you have anything you want to talk about in regards to cinema... Uh, the job of film criticism, TV criticism, which apparently we are as well. <laughs> uh, anything at all, really. We're, we're again, eager to talk. Uh, mm. We love having this uh, line, this direct feed uh, to our listeners. And it's really heartening because, frankly, a lot of the time in the industry, people always talk about like how, like, oh, yeah, people don't want to talk about movies that aren't Star Wars. Uh, yeah, apparently you do. Mm. I love that. Thank you so much. For telling us about your individual experiences and your journeys as you discover film, um, your incredible expertises in many cases. Um, mm. Thank you. Thank you for contributing to the conversation. Thank you for contributing to the channel. Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. That'd be cool. If you haven't reviewed uh, the podcast uh, before, that that would really help us out a lot. Uh, and if you really want to contribute uh, uh, above and beyond, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we have a ton of exclusive content that is already there like if you sign up today you've got like i think i got at least 100 hours Mm. of exclusive content about everything from star trek to uh firefly to the history of the academy awards commentary tracks classic tv movies not so classic tv movies Mm. uh movies and miniseries that should be on disney plus but mysteriously are not 
um, and a ton of other cool stuff. Besides, and you get to vote for future episodes of various shows. So um, to all of our patrons, we thank you. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, if you can't afford to subscribe, we thank you anyway for listening. And that means the world to us as well. Uh, as always, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And I'm at William Bibiani. And uh, now we go. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs> and now we go. Farewell. <laughs>